Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope. To Timothy, my true son in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God, the Father in Christ Jesus our Lord. The purpose of my instruction is that all believers would be filled with love that comes from a pure heart, a clear conscience, and a genuine faith. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. Although I hope to come to you soon, I am writing you these instructions so that if I am delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God. Beyond all question, the mystery from which true God in the springs is great. He appeared in the flesh, was vindicated by the Spirit, was seen by angels, was preached among the nations, was believed on in the world, was taken up in glory. Command and teach these things. Do not let anyone look down on you because you are young, but set an example for the believers in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. Fight the good fight of the faith. Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to your care. Grace be with you all. I have in this bag here two things that we would all probably consider very good and healthy for us. We have water, and water we know is essential for life. We can't live without some sort of water-based beverage, and so it's something that I hope that you're drinking every day, right? And then another thing that's super good for you that we hear, right, um, is an apple. An apple a day keeps the doctor away, right? It, that's what we've heard before, right? So good things, right? Good things for us, things that help us to thrive and be healthy. But you may not realize this, but water intoxication accounts for quite a few deaths every year. Anybody know that? Did you know that maybe like a gallon and a half of water could actually kill you if you drink that much water straight, depending on your condition and so on? Here's one you may not have known, that if you eat 18 to 22 whole apples, and I mean when a whole apple, the core, the seeds, and everything, that could kill you as well. People have died from eating too many apples. Sounds bizarre, doesn't it? Great things, but things that potentially could kill you. Now, should we begin putting warning labels on water bottles, right? Kids, drink at your own risk, right? Should we do that? How about apples? Should we monitor children so they don't get into the apple bag and eat too many of these things? And of course, that's silly, because we know that's very extreme, and that's taking things beyond reasonable, being reasonable. Well, this is a good example, a little bit of what's happening in the church in Ephesus today in our text. That things that are good, there's people within the church are saying, these things are bad. You should avoid these things. You should stay away from these things. These things should be given up in order to achieve some sort of higher spirituality. But Paul is going to tell Timothy and to tell the church that everything that God has created is good if it's used within the proper boundaries that God has provided for us. So please don't quit drinking water, right? Just don't drink a gallon and a half to two gallons straight. And don't eat 22 apples. I doubt you're going to, right? But that's the point. That sets the tone 
for the passage today. So let's go back to Timothy. We're in chapter 4, and we're going to be in verses 1 through 5 today. Chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. Paul writes to young pastor Timothy, he says, Now the Spirit expressly says that in the latter times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require absence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything God cre- that created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it was, is received with thanksgiving. For it is made holy by the word of God in prayer. Let's pray and we'll look at these five five verses today. God, we thank you so much for the truth of your word. God, we thank you that in moments like we talked about, moments of of sadness or heartbreak or disappointment or when our world has been turned upside down, that we know that you're good despite what we may be feeling or, or, or sensing at that moment because your word tells us who you are and your word provides us truth to live by. And God, I pray for each believer in here that the Holy Spirit will Take the truth of this passage and speak to their hearts specifically, personally, about how they can be more devoted to you and to the name of Jesus in our society and in the culture and the community we live. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You know, evil doesn't always look evil. Heresy doesn't always seem that bad because more than likely some sort of heresy always has a form of truth attached to it. In fact, every cult that's ever existed that has any relation to Christianity, you can find bits and pieces of truth within that. So sometimes you see things and you think, well, that doesn't look that bad, but then it takes a discerning spirit to really see what's going on. And some in the church in Ephesus had slowly drifted away from the gospel to a form of mysticism, Asceticism, which says that basically deny stuff in your life and there you find these spiritual benefits and become closer to God. And so rather than staying with what brought them to church and to God in the first place, which was Jesus Christ, they begin to abandon these things and run after these other measures in order to find some form of higher spirituality. Now, it's easy when we're talking about passages like this to disconnect it from our world because we think, oh, we're not doing that. We, we know, we've been around for a while. We've seen, we have the word. We know better than that. But I see people do this all the time. They become frustrated in their sanctification, in the growth process of becoming more and more like Jesus. And they think, you know, something's not working right. And I see it. People run after things that are feeling-based or things that uh, promote some sort of false doctrine or teaching because they feel like, I need instant results. I need to... to to see something happen. And they get frustrated with the slow process of sanctification for some kind of cheap fix that feels right, some kind of shortcut that feels right to them. But as Mitch mentioned, we have to be very leery of our feelings. Feelings are great. God gave us feelings. We should have feelings. If you are married and you can just be robotic and mechanical with your relationship with your spouse, there's a problem there. You should love and show affection to things that you care about, but not at the expense of truth, not at the expense of God's word, his revealed truth. 
And so we have to be careful that we don't allow ourselves to be so influenced by our world, the culture that we live in, the flesh, which is the things that naturally appeal to us, that, that feel right, that seem right, because they make us feel gratified and fulfilled. And the other one is, which this passage talks about, the devil, Satan, the, our true adversary. The world, the flesh, the devil, our enemies that come at us and try to convince us, just like that happened in the Garden of Eden, don't believe God, all right, trust something else. All right, God told you, but God's not reliable. He's not believable. And that happens all the time. And what can happen, the conscience can become so seared or so corrupt or so misguided and miscalibrated that we be can begin to think that what we feel at the moment is correct when in reality it's opposite and opposed to the Word of God. And this whole thing of conscience, and I'll talk about more of this in, in a minute, it, it can go in two extremes. It can be oversensitive or it can be insensitive. Your conscience can be oversensitive where you see wrongs in everything, you know, water, apple, wow, wrong stuff, that's bad. I've got to stay away from that. Or it can be deadened and insensitive where you can just indulge in whatever. Oh, God's grace is great. Whatever he, you know, I can just do whatever. He's going to forgive me. I feel good about this, so I'm going to do it. And so two extremes. So as we look in this text, that's a little bit of the background, a little bit of history, a little bit of understanding, and a little bit of relevance to us today as we approach this to understand what God is saying. And so in verse 1 he says, Now the Spirit expressly says that in the latter time some will depart from the faith. And so Paul says the Spirit just has given this. Now we don't know whether he's talking about a revelation directly to him by the Holy Spirit or some past prophetic message that was given. Or he could even be pointing back to the words of Jesus himself back in Mark chapter 13 where Jesus warned of people falling away in the latter times. And anytime you see this term in the latter times or in the last days in the New Testament, this is the period between Jesus' first coming to earth, his first advent, and his second advent, his second return. And that's the period of the last days that we're living in, that time period. He says, during this time, some will depart from the faith. The faith meaning Jesus Christ, the gospel. And so what Paul is getting at here in this church in Ephesus is very plain and simple. He's saying, there are some people who profess to know Jesus at some point. They said they were believers. They said they were Jesus followers. But they have abandoned that. They have turned their back on that. And some of these people were even former leaders or elders within this church, more than likely. And so at some time, these people appeared to be putting their hope and their faith in Jesus. But then other things came along, and maybe they didn't fully renounce Jesus, but it began to be Jesus plus other things in order for God to be approve of me or to be happy with me. I was talking to a guy the other day, just a couple of weeks ago, and he said he, his life over the last 20-some years has been, there's been no fellowship with, with Jesus, the best I can tell. There's been zero fellowship with the people of Christ, the church. There's been no real conviction of sins and admission to that. There's been no obedience to God's word and no pursuit of holiness. But he made this statement to me. He said, you know, based upon the churches that I grew up in, I prayed that prayer when I was a kid, so I guess I'm good, right? I'm good. And a lot of people feel that way. They think that just because I temporarily affirmed something, then it doesn't matter because I can just do whatever I want, live whatever I want. Maybe if you have children 
you've struggled with how to approach them about salvation, talk to them about Jesus. And maybe this has been some people's experience that you've encountered where you give them an age-appropriate uh, age explanation for their sin and how it's offense to God. When I talk to kids, you know, I say, hey, have, have you ever stolen anything? Most kids will admit it, or have you lied to your parent? Yes. And so you give them an age-appropriate understanding of God's holiness, His greatness, and how that sin has separated them from Him. And so they understand that they're personally guilty of that. And, and then you say, do you believe that Jesus died for your sins and He rose again? And he wants to save you from your sins so you can have a relationship with God. And this isn't something you earn and work for. It's his gift to you. And if a child affirms that at a, at a young age, and this gospel is simple enough for a child to affirm that and understand that, the thing is that they, they trust Jesus, but then the evidence, the proof of that, their life, as they begin to see more and more of Jesus, they begin to see more of his character as person in Scripture, they receive that. The more I see, the more I want, right? The more of Jesus that I see, the more of him that I want. And so it's, it's an understanding that I want Jesus, and at the simple level that I'm at right now, I want him. And proof of that is I continue to want him throughout my life. But Paul says to Timothy that some people get to the point where they've affirmed the fact, I want Jesus then later on down the road, they say, no, I don't want Jesus. And there's a problem with that. And it can be they can either decisively turn away by believing a false gospel, Jesus plus something else, or they just denounce it, renounce it altogether, and just turn from it and decisively make a break from Christianity. Now, this doesn't mean that a genuine Christian cannot temporarily lapse in their faith, can't resist God for a period of time, in sin. We know that's the case in our own lives, right? But living in a way that's contrary to our salvation, to the Holy Spirit living within us, to the change that He's made in our lives, should bring incredible conviction, should bring misery, uncertainty, and it should leave you in a horrible, horrible place. And so, as He's talking to these people, they could say, Oh, I profess Jesus, I'm good, like so many in our culture do, but they miss the point. Receiving Jesus isn't something you do in the past. Receiving Jesus is something that you do, and you just take him in, and he takes you in, and you put your faith and trust fully in him. But he says they'll depart from the faith. What does he say? By devoting themselves, verse 1, to deceitful spirits and the teaching of demons. Now, this seems like such a radical right turn from their faith that they're following literally the teaching of demons. Like, this has to be like witchcraft or child sacrifice or something extremely evil and radical, right? As we'll see in a minute, I mean, it's, it's actually something that could be admirable and something that could be looked at as good. That's how deceitful Satan is. And like I said, evil doesn't always look evil. And so these church members, he says, will depart from the faith. How so? By devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. How, so? how, how are they going to do that? Through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. They depart from the faith because they see these people teaching something that feels attractive, that seems attractive, and they think, well, Jesus really isn't working for me. 
like I thought he would. He's not coming through for me. This seems more appealing. This seems more inviting. So I'm going to run after what these guys are teaching me rather than what Paul and the apostles gave to them. And interestingly enough, he says about these false teachers that they're doubly deliberate in their actions. Doubly deliberate. What do I mean by that? Let me give an illustration here to you. There was a guy back in probably the late 70s, early 80s, throughout the 80s, a television evangelist. His name was Jim Baker. And Jim Baker and his wife, Tammy Faye Baker, they were extremely popular pastors on TV. And in fact, they were so well-known and had such notoriety that literally they went in and prayed with President Reagan. They were on Air Force One. But a few years, maybe close to the end of the 80s or somewhere in there, he, uh, something totally radical changed, and he was, Jim Baker and his wife were exposed for fraud. And not just fraud, I mean adultery, prostitution, all this stuff, so much more. And it's interesting, Baker was sentenced like literally to like 40 years in prison for these crimes, which a judge later reduced that sentence because it was way too severe. But he wrote an autobiography about his life, and in that he admitted to committing the sins of greed, covetousness, while at the same time masking these things with an exterior, a demeanor that seemed very pious, very spiritual. And he admitted to intentionally twisting the scriptures and ultimately teaching things that he didn't even believe himself. And so that's what these people in Ephesus were doing. Not only were they hypocrites, they were liars. They did not even believe the, only, the things they were teaching and leading people astray. And John Stott says it this way. He says, hypocrisy is a deliberate pretense and a lie is a deliberate falsehood. And that's exactly what we have here. Double liars leading people astray purposely. Why? Look what Paul says in verse 2. He says, because their consciences are seared. These false teachers were such hypocrites. They rejected the truth so much. They were liars. Till they got to the point where their, call- their, their consciences were literally just callous. They could not tell what was right from wrong. They could just do whatever and feel no remorse or guilt about it whatsoever. We talked a lot about conscience in this uh, study in 1 Timothy. He mentions that a lot, and I've actually given away a few of these books. Um, I love this. I mean, you know, the children's book is actually more entertaining than the adult version of this, all right? How, how is that for sometimes, you know, we find that to be true? And, and it has pictures, too, all right? And so I know the Webb's got one. I hope you've read that. The Walker's got one. I'm going to give this one away, and it's not Family Worship Sunday. And so we're going to give it to uh, adults, maybe grandparents or parents. Please read to your children, to your grandchildren. And so did anybody have an anniversary today? Anybody's anniversary today? How about this month? Anybody have an anniversary this month? All right, Matt and Daryl. When's yours, Daryl? When's yours, Matt? All right, so Daryl, you're the closest. Anybody closer than 14th from today? Going once, going twice. Daryl, run up here. Got this book. Perry will enjoy this. Read this to him and your other kids as uh, they're coming along. And oh, give it to Matt. All right, give it to Matt right there. They said they may already have it. Good job. And so, what is conscience? Think about that for a second. Your conscience is your consciousness of what you believe to be right and wrong. Your conscience is your consciousness for what you believe to be right and wrong. 
And again, these false teachers had rejected the faith to the point where they had desynthesized their conscience to the point where they had no feeling, no remorse. They could just lead people astray, take advantage of people, probably profit from it monetarily, making a living this way, and they didn't care what it did to people. And that still happens today as well. I've read a, uh, about a large study that was done a few years ago, and this may be shocking to some of you, probably for some of you it's not, how many pastors who are apostate, who literally stand up and preach every week, yet they don't believe the very things that they're teaching and preaching. And that happens way more often than we might think. And, and this article had different stories about specific pastors who had done this, who had just turned from their faith, but yet were still preaching. And one was this guy, they didn't give a last name, but his name was Wes, and he was a He's a Methodist pastor, and he said he lost his confidence in the Bible while attending a liberal arts Christian college and seminary. And he said, I went to college thinking Adam and Eve were real people. He said, not anymore. He says, I no longer even believe that God exists. And he says this, and listen to this. Um, you know, this is very similar to what probably the people in Ephesus were teaching at this time. Just He, he, he writes something so mystical. He says, um, God is a word that can be used very expressively in some of my more meditative moods, and a kind of poetry that is written by human beings. And so he's saying, you know, I have my moment, God moments, but he doesn't believe in God. He says his church members don't know that he's an atheist, but he said most of them are liberal themselves and probably wouldn't even care if they knew. And he says many of his fellow pastor friends don't believe Jesus literally rose from the dead as well and they don't believe in Jesus being born of a virgin, virgin, and on and on. Wow. Imagine the damage that is done to a group of people because somebody who has spiritual authority turns, manipulates, doesn't believe, and then they lead people astray. This is what's happening in Ephesus. And the false teachers were people, many of these who rose up among their ranks, just came about within their church, people who they liked, people who they trusted, and people who Paul had warned them about some time before. Let me walk through just really quickly a brief history of this church in Ephesus. Paul planted the church of Ephesus on his second missionary journey around the year AD 52. Paul spends two to three years there himself in Ephesus, preaching, teaching, building a foundation. He leaves, and then around 57... He meets, he's, he's sailing toward Jerusalem. He doesn't have time to go into Ephesus, but he wants to meet with the elders of the church, and so he calls them to an island that's nearby, and there he gets with them, he shares truth with them, he prays with them. And then in Acts chapter 20, we hear this account. This is what Paul told them, part of Paul's discussion with them. He says, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. And he says, therefore, be alert. Be alert. And so Paul had warned this church of what was going to happen. He had warned the leadership of what was going to happen, yet within their very own ranks, false teachers come about with stuff that seemed convincing, that sounded appealing, that made people feel good. It offered maybe quick-term, quick answers versus the long, arduous process of sanctification. 
And this apostasy began to turn God's people away from His Word, His revealed truth, the Word of Paul and the apostles, and they move away from the Gospel. And now Paul reveals a few examples of this demonic, deceptive teaching. And look at it. Twisted truth. Verse 3. He says, They forbid marriage and require absence, abstinence from foods. Interesting, right? Very benign things. Don't marry, and that probably has to do with sex. Sex is evil, and just certain foods are out of bounds, and if you want to please God, you just don't eat these things. We talked about that a great deal earlier in the study when Paul addressed it. But they took things that had elements of truth to them, they twisted them, and taught these things in place of the true gospel. Scripture approves both singleness and fasting. Jesus talked about the advantage of fasting often. Paul himself talked about the advantage of being single if you had the gift of celibacy, because then you could serve Jesus even with more time and more energy. And so basically they, these guys were twisting the truth to say, if you really want to get to know God and experience Him, this early form of what was called Gnosticism, you give up all your pleasure. You give up things that make you that feel good. And, and that's what's the twisted thing about this is that there are things that seemed right about this. And there's things about self-denial that are very, very important to our walk with Jesus that we have to give up. But they point out things that are good. And if you want to go higher with God, if you want to just live closer to God, if you want to be more spiritual, then you have to rise above the physical. And, and you got to live on this spiritual level. And these heresies, which were being promoted this time, were not limited to this time. In fact, if you know church history and know throughout the Middle Ages, the Roman church kept adding days where marital intimacy was prohibited till actually reached a point where half the days of the year at one point were excluded because they weren't considered spiritual, right? I'm glad for the Protestant Reformation. I don't know about you, right? But we talked about the, the, the Mosaic Law. So they, they've established all these extra-biblical rules, and Paul says they're missing the main thing. They're taking your eyes off Jesus. They've deviated from the simple gospel. Christ died for your sins according to the Scripture. He rose again on the third day according to the Scriptures. You've missed the point. You've missed the simple truth of the gospel. You've heard me say this probably a dozen times over the last few years, that it's amazing in a church that teaches Scripture like ours, and this is not just true for our church, this is true for all churches, that the simple gospel, just the simple presentation of the gospel, and you ask most Christians, what is it? And they'll say, well, I'm not really sure. I'm not exactly sure how to articulate that. Well, it has something to do with like doing good, and God will be happy with me. It's amazing how that Christians who sit in the, in the seats week in and week out still think that it's something about Jesus plus my efforts and my work. Because Satan has blinded the minds of people. In fact, I watched a video where R.C. Sproul, who uh, passed away a few years ago, is a, was a pastor, seminary president, he said that only 10% of his doctoral students in his own seminary could provide a thorough definition of the gospel. That's his words, not mine. 10% of the doctoral students, a presentation of the gospel. Why? Satan blinds our eyes and blinds our minds to the simple gospel truth. Yes, the gospel is rich enough and deep enough 
for somebody who's been a believer for 50 years to continue to be amazed at it. But it's simple enough for a child to grasp hold of and understand. I want to encourage you to know, you know this, you've heard this, to, to recognize a counterfeit, what do you do? You have to know the real thing. Know the gospel. Read the gospel. Share the gospel. Talk to your kids. Yes, I, I love when kids come and reaffirm their faith to me, but I love it when parents walk in and say, you know, my, my child already put their faith in Jesus. We walk them through it. I just want them to tell you and talk about baptism. That's the best. Because I know you as a parent are doing your job in the home. And I'm happy for those who maybe you, you don't feel confident. Please don't not bring them because of that. But more than that, dig in. Know the gospel. Christ died for our sins. He was, a, he was the God-man. And the gospel is the good news that Jesus Christ, the God-man, came to this world. He lived a perfect life, completing the law, keeping the law to its fullness. Therefore, he could be the perfect sacrifice for our sins. And he took on God's wrath so we didn't have to. He took on God's wrath against sin. And in exchange, we get Jesus' righteousness and he took our sin. And then, three days later, he rose again, proving he was who he said he was. The simple gospel. By faith. Put your hope fully in Jesus and the gospel. Don't add to it. That the false teachers forbidding marriage, forbidding intimacy, requiring you abstain from these foods because that's going to make God approve of you more and like you better. And he says, God created these things to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. So contrary to the false teachers, the Christian affirms the goodness of God's creation. God created marriage. It was a good gift. God created food. These are good. They're intrinsically good to be enjoyed through thanksgiving to God. Paul says that twice. It's so important to him. Look at verse 4. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. And so this echoes God's words in Genesis during the creation account that God saw that it was good. He said that at least five times. It's good. What I made was good. It's good. So everything exists for God's glory and his pleasure. And God made and owns the world. And he gives us many good things for our enjoyment. Our bodies and our desires belong to God. And we should understand that these are our off this is our offering to him. And he gives us things to be enjoyed. Look at verse 5. For it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. And, and what Paul is saying to Timothy is, God has to be the center of all of this. Every part of the Christian's life. It's not compartmentalizing these things. I enjoy my pizza that came out of the oven. And then I go to church. And these things never cross paths, right? No. Paul said it in 1 Corinthians 10.31. Whether you eat or drink... Or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. That's what he's getting at. God creating these things, and they're made to bring glory to him. Your marriage is a wonderful gift from God. That pizza coming out of the oven is a wonderful gift from God. The bad thing is, just like 
we can do with almost anything in life. We can take the creation that is to point people to God, and we begin to worship the creation rather than the creator. And so absolutely, food can become a god. We can turn to food as our functional savior. We can turn to all kinds of deviant behavior as our functional savior. We can make our spouse our God and replace God with the very person that he gave us to do life with. And so good things that God created should point us to God, but they make terrible gods themselves. So God gives boundaries for all the good things that he gave us. And this is where we circle back around to the beginning. Evil doesn't look so evil. We're so good at being self-swindlers and justifying whatever we want to do for our gratification, our pleasure, because we think, you know what? God gave that to me, so it's, it's to be enjoyed. And our life becomes about enjoyment. And we begin to worship the rude idols of pleasure rather than worshiping God who gave us those things to be used for his glory and his honor and our enjoyment. And we convince ourselves. I had a guy tell me, this was actually when I was in Bible college, and he was the coach of the basketball team, and I was talking to him in the gym, and he's like, and our church, our, our, our Christian college was very connected to a local church. And in fact, they required the, the professors, the teachers, the coaches, and all that to go to this local church. Well, he told me, here I'm like 20 years old, and he said, you know, I, I, don't really, I don't really get into church, organized religion that much. He goes, where I feel God is on the lake. You know, he goes, Sunday, that's where you'll find me, is out on the lake fishing. Because me and God, I mean, I just had this great relationship with God out there. Hello? You know, there's a problem. That's what happens when we begin to swindle ourselves and think that we know better than God. And that we can replace God and what he says. You need the body. You need community. You need one another. And you replace that with your own version of your relationship with God, and you begin to follow a heresy, false doctrine, false teaching, because you've set yourself up as the authority over God's Word. And so, listen, what, what are you telling yourself? What are the lies that you're saying to yourself? Weigh them against Scripture. Run back to the Word. Be Berean and search the Word and see what the New Testament says, see what the Old Testament says. See how these work in conjunction with one another. The Old Covenant, New Covenant. We talked a lot about that with the Mosaic Law and food back in week two or three. But the deceit of Satan, he takes creation and he either makes us legalists or he says, just use it however you want to do it. He says, don't, he either says, don't do it and tell everybody else not to do it because in that you'll find your salvation if you're not doing these things. Or the opposite side, which we often identify more quickly, which is the license, meaning that we can just do whatever we want to do. It's interesting that the false teachers here in Ephesus, that when their consciences were seared, they required more rules, not less rules. It seems the opposite would be true. But I think Jesus said something similar when he said that the Pharisees, they strained at gnats, yet swallowed camels. And that's so guilty of us. We can get so worked up over things, you shouldn't do that. Yet we can ignore these huge, obvious sins in our own life because we've been self-deceived, we're self-swindlers. 
and only God's Word, prayer, and the church community speaking into your life can help you see those things because they're not easy to identify, and when they are identified, they're harder to admit, and they're very hard to repent of because we like it. We get something from it. It's, it's doing something for us. And so we have to identify that and say, is this bringing glory to God? Am I just rubbing a little Jesus on this to say it's okay? Or is it really at the expense of my family or my church, my relationship with God, and I'm trying to deceive myself to say that this, should, this is taking its pl- these, the, the place of God in real relationship with Him and really walking with Him? And so in summary, head, heart, and hands. The head, trust God's Word. Plain and simple. Trust God's word. Know God's word. Trust his word. Know the gospel. And then heart and hands, I'm going to combine these today because these go hand in hand. Paul said back in verse 5, he said, for these, these creation, these items of creation are made holy by the word of God and prayer. What is he getting at there? I think he's getting at the fact that we understand that when we pray and, and really seek God, his word, we seek him in prayer over different things in our lives, different things we choose to do, different activities, the Holy Spirit will reveal to us whether this is bringing glory to God or not. The Holy Spirit will begin to work our hearts. And so we pray, we seek God, and we ask God to bring glory to himself through whatever the activity or that thing may be. Now, let's bring this personally, heart and hands. I've said this many times too. Pray sincere, real prayers. Don't let your meal prayer just be a mindless prayer you recite to feel better about yourself because you prayed over your meal. What a great opportunity that you, if you sit down a couple times a day to eat a meal, that you're having a sincere dialogue with God and you're literally thanking Him for all the good things that He's brought into your life, including the food that's at your table. And I think in that moment, not only do you redeem the thing that you're eating or the fellowship you're having, But this heart change starts to happen as you do this more and more often. You begin to connect whether I eat or drink or whatever I do. I'm doing all for the glory of God. I'm doing it all for the glory of God. And see, your life becomes, as Romans 12, 1 and 2, becomes a living sacrifice. All of a sudden, the things that you used to do for your own selfish pleasure, you may still do some semblance of that, but it's a whole different attitude It's a whole different focus now. You're doing it for God's glory rather than your own gratification. Please, please, please don't sit there and think, I see that in somebody else. Allow the Holy Spirit to show you where you're guilty of that. Rubbing some Jesus on it and thinking, I redeemed it. Let God change your heart. Sincere, real prayer, seeking His Word, being real with Him, being true with Him and allowing Him to be truly the Lord of your life. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for uh, your word that guides us, that delivers us from ourselves, that helps us to avoid the pitfalls of the world, the flesh, and the devil that are constantly coming at us, trying to suck away our passion and cause us to walk away from you, our first love. And God, may... We never become so mechanical in our religion that we lose sight of you, Jesus. That it's all about you. It's all about your truth. It's all about the gospel. And the gospel is a person that's you, Jesus. And may we fall more and more in love with you. God, for those who 
just don't understand what it means to fall in love with you, help them to take the steps of being in your word consistently and hearing from you on a daily basis and being in prayer, even at the times that they already prayed, to redeem those for meaningful purposes so they can begin to see what it means to truly have a real and personal relationship with you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.